Hey everyone, today on Donor Conception Conversations, I have a fantastic guest. Her name is Rosanna Hertz, and she is a researcher and an author and has written so much and studied so much about families. Today, she is going to share with us a lot of intriguing information about donor-conceived families, things that'll be really interesting to you about donor-conceived families and searching in particular. She talks about searching for donor-conceived siblings. She talks about searching for donors. She talks about networks that get formed and all kinds of relationships that develop as a result of finding your genetic family. And in this book, she talks a lot about it. And as you can see, I've dog-eared it. I've put post-it notes in it. I've marked it up because there's so much great information here. So come to the podcast and join us. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family, or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today we have a fantastic guest. Her name is Rosanna Hertz, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, and then she can tell you about herself. She's known for her research on the intersection of families, work, and gender. For the past 25 years, she's focused on the emergence of new family forms and how they expand our understanding of kinship. In her 2006 book, Single by Chance, Mothers by Choice, She captured popular attention with its finding that the age-old desire for motherhood was in fact reinforced by new scientific advances in reproduction. This book received two awards. In her new book, Random Families, Genetic Strangers, Sperm Donor Siblings, and the Creation of New Kin with her co-author, Margaret K. Nelson, she examines the contemporary interplay of genetics, social interaction, and cultural expectations in the formation of web-based donor sibling kin groups. A new set of complexities emerge as donor siblings attempt to expand our understanding of kinship. She received her PhD in sociology from Northwestern University and completed a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry of Harvard Medical School, and she's done so many other things, but we want to just dive right into it. So welcome, Rosanna. So nice to meet you face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom, whatever that is. And um, I'm so pleased to have you on this podcast. I really loved your book. As I mentioned to the viewers earlier, I dog-eared it like crazy, and I, I've written so many notes. I'm really fascinated by everything that you had to say. And so I thought maybe we can just jump in by starting to talk about maybe the different sibling groups that you have found in your research. And what I think the audience would really appreciate is a little bit about them and how they differ and what makes a sibling group different from another sibling group. So thank you, Lisa, for that lovely introduction. I'm delighted to be here today. So I want to tell you about the findings from um, my co-authored book uh, called Random Families. And the reason that it has that title, first of all, is because 
People go to a fertility clinic, uh, they go to a sperm bank, they go to egg banks, um, and they don't know the other people out there who may have purchased the same sperm or eggs or embryos. And they are connecting on the internet, which is a, a crazy time that we're living in, that, that the ability to do this, or they're either connecting through uh, registries from these banks, independent registries, or even from 23andMe and Ancestry.com. So the reason that they're also interested in doing this is because these are genetically related strangers. And the question becomes, do they want to turn them into some kind of kin? And that's exciting that this is a way to expand our understanding of kinship. And we can talk about that later on. So in random families, we're going cross country, interviewing people in person and also on, at that time, Skype today, Zoom, around their experiences uh, with donor conception and with, with donor use and donor conception and also with connecting up with other people who also shared the same donor. Um, we interviewed both parents and children within, within uh, nuclear families, and these were uh, same-sex couples, heterosex couples, and uh, lesbian couples, all of whom had at some point gone to sperm banks or egg banks um, to create their families and to build their families because I'm interested in family building and the, and the many, many ways that people do that. So what we found and what the second part of the book does is it lays out various ways in which these networks differ because um, it's not like everyone who goes and meets donor siblings has the same initial experience. But what's sort of interesting is those people who conceived with donors and locate others who conceived pre-2003 didn't anticipate donor siblings. There was no knowledge of donor siblings at that point. If you think about the internet and where we were uh, earlier period, you know, you couldn't just Google this or Google that or even find sperm on the internet the way or eggs the way you can today. So the people who conceived with donors Prior to 2003, when they did so, they never thought about uh, donor siblings, and neither did I, frankly. You know, this idea that you can connect up with someone who also happened to purchase the same gametes is pretty remarkable. And so they were like surprised. People who conceived after around 2003, which is the last couple of groups that we uh, talk about in this research, they were more likely to anticipate that it would be possible to connect up with other people who happen to share the same donor. And you can stop me, Lisa, whenever you want um, and ask questions. No, Feel free. Interesting. So the first group we call Michael's Clan, and this is a group in which the, and I want to tell you that we interviewed donor-conceived youth who ranged in age from age 10 through age 28. And so in this first group, which was highly anticipated, it was a small network of people. The donor is from a California bank, and I won't tell you which one. This is a, a small group in which the children are, come to, or the teens come to, want to locate their donor after the age of 18. And we call this Michael's clan because we were lucky enough to be in California um, interviewing this, these particular families when the donor also showed up. That was a weekend that he was visiting with um, his donor-conceived offspring or children, as he calls them. And what makes that group sort of interesting is that, the unlike other groups, is that the donor actually introduces the kids to one another. 
these kids who are now in their 20s when we, when we interview them. And they actually see, and each donor has a different spot within these networks. They talk about this donor as important to their lives. Their parents talked about their donor as also, um, they call him Pops. And that was a point in which uh, people saw and thought about donors as coming forward after the age of 18 and that they would be some kind of parent to these kids. Later on, that's not the case. And so this group is really unique. The next group that we feature in the book is, is the 7008ers called the Builders. Um, and 7008 is the name that the teens gave to this group. They Each of the groups named themselves. And 7008 is the sperm donor number. So they all were conceived with a sperm donation. And that group is based on this idea of we're here to build a, an extended family, in quotes. Think about it as an ex, as an extended kind of family, but a new kind of family. We don't know each other. We come from all over the country. When the kids were uh, young teens, they traveled to a city in the Midwest. I think it was Minnesota, uh, where they all met up. There were nine nine kids with from seven families at that time, and uh, they all met up to try to figure out what their relationships were about. The kids were ambivalent, especially the boys, about what the what this would mean, what this wouldn't mean. They were also shocked and surprised to know that they were not the only child who shared their sperm donor, but that there were other kids out there who had been created from the same donor sperm. The other thing that's sort of interesting is they refer to their meeting as a reunion because they were all together in sperm state, so to speak. Um, hmm. And now they are getting to meet each other in person. They don't know what those relationships will look like, but they think about themselves as an extended family. And what they do is they use ideas that they have about families in general, put them to use in the course of their conversations with one another. And that interview centers on the, on their kids' voices, on these teens' voices. And they're looking to squeeze themselves into family in all kinds of interesting ways, which is older, younger distinctions, who's responsible for whom. And they all believe that they want to love one another, that it's possible to love all of their donor siblings and to make them into some kind of, of sibling relationship. And family is a tricky term, but that's the language that they use, brothers and sisters, not all groups do. And so that narrative and that network lays out this sense of how they squeeze themselves into relationships. It also explores the fact that that this is a voluntary relationship to uh, join with other people who happen to be conceived with your same sperm donor, and that kids come forward at different ages, at different periods of time, which means that these groups are, you don't always know, unlike given you know kin who you're raised with, you don't always know who's out there, who are the relatives mm -hmm. who come forward, and they come forward at different periods of time with different experiences. So that's the second group. The third group we refer to as the tourists, and that group features a group of kids who are older. They meet for the first time in their teen years as well. But unlike the earlier group, the 7008ers, the tourists really are there just to find out, to satisfy their curiosity, who's in the group, what are they about? And like tourists, they're looking to see if maybe they'll like each other, maybe they won't. They're curious, but they're not gonna stay around very long. So they don't form tight relationships with one another in a very big way. The weekend was fun. But since they meet at, at later ages than the 7008ers, 
for the first time. Many of them are very involved with their school, with their friends, with other kinds of things. So they don't really stay in touch except for sending holiday, holiday greeting cards to one another. And they don't really consider themselves relatives in a very big way. And I can talk more about that if you're interested. I just have one question about that. So they're different than, the, let's say, the previous groups in that they see themselves as donor-conceived siblings or genetically connected, but they're not family per se. Right. And they don't consider themselves close. They don't consider themselves, they don't want to explore those relationships because part of this is how do you turn, you know, genetically related strangers into some kind of kin. The kids in that group say it was a fun weekend. They went to a water park together for the first time they met. Um, It was a lot of fun, but, you know, there really wasn't, they didn't feel a connection. They didn't feel a bond. They didn't, it was nice to know who was out there. They had different lives and this was not the time in their life to start exploring and try to, try to expand family um, in ways that Mm -hmm. um, other groups decided they would or other individual kids did. Now, the caveat here is that in that group, there there is um, kids from two different families who do decide that they do want to be close and they do meet independently. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes in many of these groups, because they've gotten so large and there's so many children who have been conceived with, with a donor, uh, there is much more picking and choosing than we would assume as to who the impossibility of getting to know 25 people or not. So there's lots of picking and right. choosing. Who, who are you going to like? Exactly. Right. You know, Just like, you know, what, if you have a lot of siblings, which sibling do you spend the most time with the one that you like the most, right? It's- right. And even your cousins. And over time that changes. You know, I know with my cousins, I'm maybe with yours too, you know, the, the cousin I'm closest with or was closest with uh, when I was 10 years old is a different cousin than than the cousin I'm closest with today. And they change over mm-hmm. time. I know who, that they're all there and I know what they're about. But as my own interests change, as things that I want to explore more changes, as they have time, as I have more time, less time, whatever, those relationships change and they're mo- much more fluid. You know, so again, which is which sibling, which cousins you're the closest to change over time. They're just it's not fixed in in ways that we may think of or that we assume because we're born into the same family. And then the next group is right. Who's the next group? The next group we call connected connected uh, soulmates. And I love this group. I love them all. I mean, I admit to you, but they're sort of interesting because. What we do is we feature the emotional ties that are developed by kids in two different families in particular. They discover that they have a lot of things in common with one another that they don't have in common with their own siblings who they're being raised with at home. Um, and hmm. as um, uh, a boy we call Spencer put it, they, they, the kids, he and a girl named uh, Georgina develop a very close relationship with one another. They both are very factual in how they think is how the, as, as how both these kids put it. And they they were like preteens when I interviewed them. And for example, they like random trivial facts. Like they, they both knew that the underskin of blueberries is actually green. And, and this really was a thrill that they found somebody else who thought like they did and who appreciated them in a way that they felt their own siblings um, didn't, and even their parents didn't. So by reaching out to other kids who were genetically, genetic relatives of theirs and forming these bonds, they met someone who uh, they bonded with and and felt uh, that, that they were soulmates, even though they were not being raised within the same family, which is sort of interesting. Hmm. The final group we call the social capitalists, 
They were the youngest group, but we didn't interview the kids because they were all under the age of five. We interviewed only the parents within that group. And we call them the social capitalists because they get ideas about the benefits the group can provide, which is one of the main reasons the parents join up. They know that there's a large group of social ties and they hope that they will someday advantage their children. There'll be knowledge that their kids can fly around the world, stay with other people, sleep on their couches, but they also reject the language of siblings. And they want their kids to be able to decide what those relationships are about. And they invent the language of diblings, which is a charming language. Um, Part of the problem here is we don't have another language. We don't have a nomenclature with which to talk about these relationships. So these parents have joined up very early, almost upon birth or before age two, most of the time, met with one another or and are fa- pl- planning re- reunions. And most of their relationships do take place currently on Facebook. Even though Facebook is dated, people remain on Facebook around particularly these groups. And is that group of parents interested in keeping the kids connected? Are they planning to keep the kids in touch with each other? or They're planning to keep the kids in touch. They have a, well, pandemic kind of disrupted some of this, as you know, um, but they basically do try to get together once a year, whatever families want to meet up, but they've already developed. I've stayed in touch with members of most of these groups. And in that case, they have developed subgroups that emerge or have emerged. And uh, some kids are paired up. They feel closer to this one, closer to that one. But they do plan to stay together. They just want the kids to choose the language, the kids to choose the relationships. And they also hope that it will be the kids that are important to each other. And this group, unlike the first group of Michael's clan, they talk about the donor as a donor. They want their kids to say in preschool, I have a donor, not a dad, uh, not a father, sorry. I have a donor, not a father. That donor helped to create me. But the spot of the donor is very marginalized within that within the, that particular group. So there's like less anticipation mm-hmm. about meeting that donor when they get older. Um, and so the parents feel that at, in most of these groups, the donor siblings will become the important relationships for these kids, not necessarily the donors. Even in the one where they're the donor started the relationships. That's the group that's sort of interesting where that donor has assumed the role of pops, but he is an early donor from the nineties. And these kids also, even then these kids also, they're not kids any longer. I should say that they're in their twenties. They do realize that he is not the person they come to. If something goes wrong, if something goes right, they go to their parents who raised them. The parents who raised them in all of these narratives become the more important people in these kids' lives than the donors in a big way. That leads me to another question, something that you raised in your book, which is, I think, interesting for people to know. I talk about a lot because people do worry, I think, when they're approaching donor conception, if I try to reach out to the donor, if I try to reach out to donor-related siblings, is this going to be you know, opening a Pandora's box? Is my child going to then not be happy with me? Are these donor-conceived siblings or the donor going to form such a strong alliance with my child that I'm going to be out of the picture? And I think that's a lot of parents' fear. Here's what I want to say. I first of all, legally, these relationships are are marginalized or have no meaning legally. And when it comes to the donors, kids are curious. 
but even curiosity is not is not extended to all the kids that I that, that I've interviewed of the like if I take the builders for example the 7008ers that that particular group of which we interviewed uh, 16 kids within that particular group uh, only a third of them are really really find it important for their own identity to get to know that donor to meet that donor to connect with that donor a third of the kids that we interviewed are very ambivalent about it. They're, they really have very minimal interest in the donor per se. And a third of the kids could, could say that they have, they have no interest. You know, they, they have no desire to know who that person is. What's sort of interesting is the donor siblings take on a life of their own and they are a lot less, uh, in quotes, threatening to any families. The right. donors always appear to be this object of more problematic issues. But among the families that we interviewed, there are no donors who became parents. Most of the donors come, who have come forward do so for factual purposes. Maybe you want to know if you look like me. Maybe you want to know about we have the same quirky smile or the same um, ideas about this and that. But basically, the donors are marginalized. And though varied relationships do appear with um, individual or particular families, I think the donor siblings add to family life in many ways. They become a new kind of kin. And they exist independent of the donor. The other thing is you can reach out to donor siblings before age 18, which is what most people do do, so that the kids form these relationships with other people who they can then expand ideas about kinship. This becomes especially important in this work for donor-conceived youth who are raised as solo children, who would have liked a brother or a sister, and now they can yeah. find that relationship within these networks. So that becomes helpful. The other thing is that oftentimes, which is, I was very surprised about this, donor-conceived kids do not necessarily know other donor-conceived kids. And their parents were not donor-conceived for the most part. So this way they can, they can have conversations, they can meet other people who share that particular status, who understand what, what that means. But a lot of the reason that, that people do reach out, particularly parents who do a lot of the connecting, is out of curiosity as to who the others are, um, more so than anything else. So whether the donors are really interested in forming a relationship, if they're not interested in forming a relationship, some are, some aren't, some siblings are, some siblings aren't. But in any of those situations, it doesn't change the fact that the family, the legal family, is still the legal family, right? Your, your parents that you grew up with are still your parents, you know, for better or worse, these are the, still the people that you have these um, connections with. And sometimes you have these connections, eventual connections with um, donor-related siblings or donors that turn out quite nice, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's, you put it, you, you hit the nail on the head as, as so to speak, but, but that's exactly it. I mean, the nuclear family has remained intact. I know of no family that fell apart because of donors or donor siblings, but I will say this, I think it's important to disclose. Of course. And yeah. that becomes really critical. The families where the children have the most problems in the literature, it's not in my own work, but in the literature is when parents didn't disclose and kids discover this quite independent yes. of their parents. Disclosure brings with it this curiosity about who that person, uh, that other person might be in terms of the donor. And disclosure also for, for kids may bring today the um, curiosity about who are the other, the others in quotes 
uh, people who also may have been conceived with this donor. And I may or may not, what does it mean? Are these relationships important? You know, most of us have choice family in our lives. And for some people, they not only have choice family, but they have blood family uh, as well. But but this is like a new kind of category that that's emerged. You know, they're not they're not given at birth. Um, they emerge as voluntary. Mm-hmm. You describe in the book how some some of these people that you've interviewed struggle a little bit trying to figure out their way in the world. As you said, there's no language for real language that's kind of taken on to be the kind of normative language for donors or donor-conceived ch- children. And so they kind of struggle to figure out, am, are you more like a cousin to me? Are you more like a friend? Are you more like a sibling? And kind of trying on those different hats to figure out how they connect with each other in the families. Yes, exactly. So kids have these categories. And what most of us do is we take the categories we know best, and we then attempt to apply them to new people, to new situations. So we have these two categories that kids, well, we all have these two categories, which is family and friend. And for some kids, they're looking for, they don't, they don't want more family, but they do, they see these kids as potential friends. For other kids, they see the possibility for family. And I think there's the difference is this, when we choose friends, we choose people who are similar to ourselves more so. So if I'm on the crew mm-hmm. team, I'm going to try to, I will find friends from the crew team, people I sh- who share my interests in crew, people who share my interests in reading novels or whatever. When I'm looking, when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm talking about family and siblings, they could be very different than myself. I have to put up with them in some ways. Right. You know, because we all share the same parents or we, sh- we all share the same household or we share the same resources. So this is a new kind of, of siblinghood in which many of the kids say, you know, I didn't have a lot in common with this person, but we are donor conceived and share the same donor. So therefore, let's try to create or, or make family out of that relationship. So family and what the kids, what the donor conceived youth did say to us is that they had a greater tolerance for their donor conceived siblings who were not necessarily like themselves. And, you know, that there would be a great deal of um, variability in terms of what kids were like, what religion they were raised with, what geographic area, whether they were raised with a lot of money, a little money, whatever it was, what part of the country they were from, whether they were raised in urban environments, rural environments. So there was a greater sense of uh, breadth around who we who we think of as, as kin. Now, that said, many of us still uh, gravitate toward the siblings or toward the kin who we find more like ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it varies enormously. Or in one case, in the 70s, I've been in touch with uh, a number of the, the these kids who came to college in the Boston area from all over the country. Uh, that's how, since I live there, you know, I've been in touch with them. We get together on occasion. And so they reconnected in, in new ways that they hadn't as younger kids, but because they all ended up in Boston, they are spending, let's say, one night a week together having dinner and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, trying to work out these relationships, but they've also left home. I mean, that's the other interesting thing about the donor networks, which is that once you leave home, your parents are less likely to be orchestrating these relationships. Um, So you have to decide, am I going to remain close to this cousin, that cousin, this sibling, that sibling, because your parents are no longer there. But 
Your parents have given you the opportunity growing up to know who these kids are. And that's Mm -hmm. an interesting point here. Um, I mean, the idea of what constitutes a sibling, siblinghood and what the meaning of that is about is really an understudied topic in general with donor siblings adding this, this new kind of siblinghood relationship and possibility to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're saying that, you know, it also makes me think about something that we, we spoke about earlier that I think parents are curious about because sometimes I hear donor-conceived children say, you know, I really love knowing my donor-conceived siblings since day one. I wish I had known them all. I wish my parents had taken me to the playground and we had grown up knowing each other and then I could make a decision. Do I want to remain friends with them or not? And then other people say, no, I want that to be my decision. I want to be able to be the person to say and own that. I want to reach out to them or not. And and then some people, of course, don't care, you know, one way or the other. So what do you recommend to parents who are kind of grappling with this? Should I reach out? Should I not reach out? How much do I reach out? Should I reach out just, as you said, in some groups, just for the medical information? Should I reach out for a connection? Should I get the kids together? What are your thoughts about that? Well, Lisa, that's an amazing, it's a very interesting question because in my research, and this is both in the single mother by choice book, as well as in random families and my current research, the parents are the ones who seem to be doing most of the reaching out, which except I want to say this in uh, some of the lesbian families that I've interviewed, where there is more of a minimizing of this idea of a genetic tie altogether between the ch- the children and the and their moms. So for the most part, it is the parents who are reaching out. And sometimes the, the kids do resent that, particularly the teenagers. I don't think the younger kids resent it as much because they don't have a choice. And for some parents, mm-hmm. they do it because they feel that they want their children to have memories of having uh, these relationships started when they were much younger. Uh, I think in an ideal world, we would ask, we would tell our children about donor siblings when they were at an age to understand that a they were donor conceived and that other children were conceived with that same donor as part of their birth story, and it would be parents who would you know confer with their child before introducing all of these new relationships. Now the caveat there is, you know, I don't know about you, but when you meet with your cousins, my mother didn't say you want to meet your cousins, you don't want to meet your cousins. I met my cousins because my parents insisted, I know my cousins, right. you know, so mm-hmm. it's the same kind of thing. In some ways, children have fewer rights in our culture and it's parents who control most of what goes on with kids. And that's why parents reach out, but they also reach out for their own curiosity. Um, and they also reach out in uh, to make sure that these are good people, that they like these people, that they share some of the same values, though not necessarily all of them. Um, And it's parents who want to facilitate these relationships so that kids know that donor conception is a normal way to build families today. Um, So I think that parents' intentions are um, important and the motivations are a reason why I understand that that parents are really facilitating these relationships early on. And the kids who wait till they're older, I think that they have more trouble forming relationships because um, they don't have that sense of being embedded within this broader network of kinship when they were much younger. Mm-hmm. Which kind of goes back to your, uh, your you know, thoughts about, you know, single children, right? If you have one child, 
maybe in that situation, it's a little bit more advantageous for everybody concerned, right? To have more sibling experiences and growing up with those people. Then you look back as a teenager and have a history with somebody rather than just meeting them for the first time. It's a different experience. Right. And what's sort of interesting that the kids who were being raised solo without other siblings in their immediate family, they didn't know how to act as siblings. They talk about that. You know, what's my obligation as a sibling? You know, if you think about those people who were raised with siblings and what the literature shows there, you know, there is this distinction, girls get treated this way, boys get treated that way, which is too Mm -hmm. bad. But, you know, we still have those gender divides or there's expectations around older siblings taking care of younger siblings or girls doing this, boys doing that. So kids who don't have siblings that they're being raised with have to reinvent this wheel all the time. Kids who are being raised with siblings have ideas about what siblinghood means, and they don't see the donor siblings necessarily on par with the kids who are living in their, in their immediate families, who they can hmm. fight with on a daily basis, who you know they they um, are walking to school with, who they can talk to you know whenever they feel free to talk to, though there is a lot of text messages that goes on once the kids get older and Instagram accounts and everything else, which is the ways in which they do stay in touch. So interesting. I feel like I could speak to you for hours, Rosanna. There's so much to discuss, and I really would love to, but we do have to wind down. So I really would like our audience to be able to reach out to you because there are so many questions. I mean, I hope that we've answered some questions for people today and not just raised too many. I want to be able to help people and let them know that there's a lot of great information, and everyone should take a look at this book. It's fantastic. As you can see, I've got lots of notes, and I really loved it. There's a lot of great information information. And yes, there was a lot of questions, but I think there are also a lot of answers here. And the good news as is that we're getting further and further along in our understanding as we're exploring these relationships. So um, where can people reach out to you, Roseanne? So they can reach me at my school address, which is R-H-E-R-T-Z at Wellesley, W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to engage with anyone who would like to talk or send me an email. I'm also working on a new project called Delaying Parenthood um, and people's experiences going to fertility clinics. I'm interested in in interviews, so please reach out to me. I'm interested in interviewing people who use specifically donors and IVF and conceive children after the age of 38. And as we begin to delay parenthood more so in America than ever before, we wait to get older. This is an important topic and we don't know a whole lot about it. So please reach out to me if you're willing to be interviewed on Zoom in depth. Um, And I'd love to hear about your fertility journey and stories. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for doing all of this research. Um, I thank you on behalf of all of us who really benefit from it because it's it's so fantastic to be able to have this research and to understand these things in a deeper way. We all, you know, could only meet so many people and speculate so much and you've done such really interesting research about all of these families. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks Lisa for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed myself. Oh, good. Good. And for all of you who are out there, please reach out to Rosanna. And certainly you can reach out to me at familybuilding.net. And also please subscribe because that's how we keep going and how you can hear about all the new episodes. So thank you for joining us at Donor Conception Conversations. And I'll see you next time. 